Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome back to season three of She Pivots. I'm your host, Emily Tish Sussman, coming to you from an endless winter of sickness. So we've told up to date almost 50 stories of incredible women. And as a result of this show, like we're seeing a culture shift, like the shift we had hoped, because people are really being able to see themselves in the stories and seeing that they can make changes. And sometimes the changes are just a perspective shift yourself. One of the things that makes me crazy is when I hear people say like, oh, I had this career before, but that was all a waste because I'm not going to do it again. I'm doing something different now. It's not a waste. Everything you did built you up to the person that you are right now. You've taken something from it. You've grown in ways you may not even realize. And I think it's especially true for ambitious women. It's hard to see themselves this way if their circumstances have changed or if they're not in the same job. But you know what? You are still that same ambitious person. It doesn't mean that you're not the same ambitious person that you were if your circumstances changed. It means that you have changed the definition of your success. You're not lost. You're not gone. You have everything you need inside of you. You just need to change the perspective. In a world where conventional notions of achievement often revolve around like linear career paths, I'm really proud to spotlight the real life experiences of these remarkable women who've shown that success is not defined by one size fits all formula. I broke the cycle by leaving my decades long career in DC politics after I had three kids in just four years. Like it wasn't easy. And at times I doubt that I made the right decision. I definitely have FOMO. But as I look back, it was in those really low points that I was able to truly change my perspective and then carve out a different and possibly better path for myself. I'm so happy that I can have this platform to not just highlight the stories of women who have made changes, but also tell the stories for myself. And it gives me ideas of places to be investing, businesses to be looking at, really affirming that it's okay that I have a different perspective than I did before. 
So, you know, in this last couple of years, I've started investing in more women-owned businesses. I just became a co-owner of Gotham FC football, women's football. I'm investing in theater, taking different risks and different kind of chances that I couldn't have done if I was still in the same political job that I was before. So I'm so excited for this season ahead and I can't wait to share the stories with you. Welcome back to She Pivots. I'm Misty Copeland. We're kicking off this season with a true icon, Misty Copeland. You may know her as the first African-American premier ballerina of the American Ballet Theater. You may know her as an author. You may know her as a founder or philanthropist. Now, you might be thinking, hasn't Misty always been a ballerina? Yes, that may be true. But Misty's journey to becoming the first Black premier ballerina for the American Ballet Theater is more than meets the eye. Misty grew up in San Pedro, California, and didn't start dancing until the age of 13, which, as any dance enthusiast will know, it's quite old to begin ballet. I had the honor of interviewing Misty in person, and her being is just full of grace, like she floats in the room. She's confident and kind, and you'd never guess that she grew up incredibly shy. Misty had a unique journey to her success and one that forced her to redefine and find new versions of success for herself at an extremely young age. From going through a difficult custody battle between her mother and her mentor and dance teacher to going through delayed puberty at the age of 19 and ballet opportunities drying up as a result. It was fascinating to hear how those changes shifted her perspective and allowed her to embrace different paths and roles as one of the most famous ballerinas and specifically Black ballerinas in the world. As her success has grown, she's had to learn to step into her power, and she has. From starting the Misty Copeland Foundation, to authoring several books, to starting her own athletic wear line. I'm so excited to share this story with you and even more excited for everything to come in season three. Hope you enjoy. My name is Misty Copeland. I am a principal ballerina with American Ballet Theater. I am also a mother. I am an author. I am a philanthropist. I am a designer. I'm a woman. I love that. <laughs> I love that so much. Well, I'm so glad we opened with that question. The premise of this show is that we are not singular beings, mm-hmm. right? Like we don't, like if we look at someone's resume, we think, oh, of course, that's the trajectory they took, right. but it, it's not how we experience it. Right. And that it's not just all professional resume stuff, right? Like exactly. these personal things in our life change our perspective. Mm-hmm. And you are an incredible example of that. I've always wanted, I love the arts. So I've always wanted to have people, you know, people in the arts on, especially in dance, because you don't necessarily decide as a dancer when your first dance career is over. Absolutely. I feel like it's such an interesting field that I... I was going to say I chose, but I didn't choose it. I think that it really found me. And I feel like what I've done with this opportunity was used dance as a tool to do so many other things. And often in the ballet world in particular, we don't have agency. We don't have kind of control over when our career begins, when it ends, when we can have children what the next steps will look like. You know, there hasn't been room, I guess, for more diversity in so many ways. And I feel like coming into this field, I was such a shy and quiet girl. 
and um, really just like insecure and trying to understand how I fit into the world. And my family always found it so profound that I would choose this field where I'm in front of an audience and I'm entertaining and I'm, you know, you know, it was the opposite of who I was as a little girl, but there was something that I was drawn to about this form of expression that allowed me to grow in ways I don't think I ever would have um, had I not been um, introduced to, to ballet. Do you remember before you started ballet, you know, people ask little kids, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, do you remember? Before 13 years old, being asked that question, no idea. I had no idea what I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. I don't feel that I really ever felt a sense of like purpose or belonging or that there was anything I was particularly good at or really interested in. I was so introverted and was literally just existing and hiding. Like I didn't want to be the center of attention just the life that we were living, you know, my mom was a single parent. We often didn't have a roof over our heads. So it was like my everyday was don't let anyone know what's going on in your home life. Like that was my existence. So the thought of a future or what I would do was not a part of, wasn't a part of my life at all. It was probably just the worst time in my childhood when ballet found me. Well, you started ballet pretty I don't want to say old. It's ridiculous. You were 13. But But, but it's such a specific athletic form Mm -hmm. that you really do need to start young. And you started many years probably after peers did. And I understand that you kind of watched for like a week. Yeah. Again, like I had no knowledge of what the classical ballet world was. I'd never heard classical music before. And it was it was really music that made me be drawn to dance. But it was more pop music and um, soul and R&B and hip hop that drew me to wanting to be on the drill team at my middle school. Um, And from there, I was really pushed into taking this free ballet class at my local boys and girls club at the community center that was right across the street from my school. And I just was, I had no interest. And the teacher was like, just give it a shot. And, you know, it was like, well, just stay in the room. And that was like the first step. So I was like, fine, I'll sit on the bleachers and I'll watch. Um, and she kept sending notes home with my, you know, just to give to my mom and, and just say like, I'm really interested in having Misty take these classes. And yeah, I think it was maybe a week later that I finally said, okay, I'll do it. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. 
how this beguiling woman in her 50s she looked like a million bucks with zero qualifications she had a harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents she's got all of these maseratis and bentley's all in the driveway is it like a mansion yes it's a mansion that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I took that first ballet class on the basketball court in my gym clothes. And that teacher said, you're a prodigy. I've never seen anyone who could pick up the movement so quickly and retain um, the information and whose body could just really adapt and, you know, musically, what, how you connected the you know, movement to the music. Misty Copeland has been dancing for only three years, but she has won competitions over ballerinas with years more experience. Many in the dance world say Misty is poised on the brink of stardom. I just hope to become a famous ballerina. <laughs> but at just 13, still living in a motel with her mother and five siblings, she was just a young girl with no idea or concept of the heights she would eventually reach. I fell in love immediately. Like once I was in the atmosphere that I still to this day hold, like it's such a sacred space. It was the first time in my life that I was in a, in a room where I felt safe and I felt seen and heard. It seems so opposing that you're practically naked and vulnerable, you know, in, in what you're wearing and, and the way that you're kind of giving yourself to this art form. But I felt so in control and brave and confident, like all of the things I had never experienced growing up, you know, as, as one of six children with little stability throughout my life. And it was just like, oh, like the puzzle pieces just came together. And it was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And it just started to make sense. And what I was learning in the studio, I was starting to open up and be able to apply those things outside mm. in school, even just social skills. And it all feels so backwards to me now. 
and I'm sure people on your team could relate to this as, as, you know, performers and dancers, but so many ballet dancers don't have great social skills <laughs> and are not really, you know, you're kind of in this bubble because you're, you're training, you're, you're working towards professional career and you don't have a lot of time to be social in, in your life. And I feel like I, it was like the opposite experience for me. It was just opened up a whole world that I didn't even know was there. And I grew in leaps and bounds. Wow. So when you say, you know, you took skills that you learned from ballet and you took it to outside social skills, what were some of the ways that you took it into, into school? There was an understanding of being able to, to be present and to, to focus, to have this sense of, of discipline, to be able to think um, critically even to have more empathy, like to think outside of myself. I was not capable of doing that because I was so concerned with just surviving every day that I couldn't even see beyond, you know, this little bubble that I was existing in. And, and I didn't want anyone to see me. And it started to change, you know, it was like, I'm feeling confident about who I am in my body. And I want people to see me now. I want people to see the person I'm growing into. And, and it just, it completely changed my, my outlook on everything. So what was your schedule like as a teenager? They um, ended up pulling me from my public school. So I was doing um, homeschooling, independent studies. And I would take um, like an adult ballet class in the mornings. I would go home and do some homework. And then I would take a beginner ballet class at like three o'clock. And then I would take the advanced ballet class in the evening. So I was taking up to three classes a day, like maybe a modern class in there sometimes or a Pilates class. And then she had a company. So I was also performing with this company. Uh, so we would, you know, learn choreography and be rehearsing for different shows. Um, so it was pretty rigorous. At this point, Misty was training with her instructor and mentor, Cindy Bradley, who believed in Misty's talent more than anyone ever had before. I never felt judged by her. Um, she, she was just a, a support uh, a friend, a mentor, all of these things to me, uh, and a ballet teacher that was just so open to giving as much of herself to me to get me to where I needed to be uh, professionally. Still, eventually Misty's intense schedule, paired with her rocky home life, forced her to pick between the two. So she did what she thought was best. One day, Cindy drove her home to the motel where she was living, and Misty told her she had to quit dance and ran inside. A couple of minutes later, there was a knock at the door and Cindy had turned around. She had left and was just kind of in shock with what she just witnessed and then decided to turn back around. And uh, she spoke with my mom for a while and my mom turned to me and said, Cindy asked if, if you would want to go and live with her so you can continue training. And it was shocking. And I was like, yes. <laughs> Both Misty and her mother said yes. After some time, tensions rose as Misty became busier and busier with dance. She was less able to go home and visit her mother. That's when the court battle ensued. That feud sparked an unusual legal battle over the control of the young dancer's future and played out in national headlines and on television talk shows. So you went through this pretty prolonged court battle. Yeah. Well, I guess the adults in your life did that you were yes. the subject of. And to know that you were so introverted and had not that long before that come from this place of, you know, I just, I don't want anyone to notice me to now be getting all of this press. Mm -hmm. 
And then in the end, you moved back with your mother. Yeah. Do you remember what that was like to have gone from this like public, public battle to then just be in private together, like in those intimate moments? Well, it was mortifying. It was probably the worst year of my life, um, 15 years old, when, you know, they think there was just like a lack of communication and understanding on both ends, like from my teacher, what it meant for my mom, you know, having six children that she's raised on her own and having in her eyes, one taken away from her. And then from my teacher, it's like, but do you understand this talent that we have here? And for me in the middle, you know, it was like, I just want everyone to be happy and I just want to continue dancing. And it blew up and became something so much bigger than I ever imagined. Going from, you know, wanting to hide the fact that I, me and my siblings were living in a, a one room motel to having it all over uh, every news and talk show, news show you could think of was just, it was traumatizing. And then having to go back to school, you know, once I moved back in with my mom, I was back in school and everyone knew everything about me. So those were really, really tough years. I was, I couldn't wait to not be in the, in the limelight like that. I would say it was pretty consistent though, from the time I started dancing that I was in the public eye mm-hmm. and, and even post, you know, all of the court battle and all of that. But that moment in particular was something that no child should ever experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really, really, really difficult. Do you think that your mother felt that you had were pulling away, like that you were different and had changed? Yeah, absolutely. And I and I don't think that she was capable at the time of of seeing that as a positive thing. That I needed room to grow into my own person. And now as a mother, I completely understand it. You know, I can't imagine letting go of my son so that he could grow. I mean, you know, I don't think that she saw it in that way in the beginning. In the beginning it was like, okay, someone this small little ballet studio in San Pedro, California, this teacher thinks my daughter's talented. Okay, I'll go let her take some ballet classes after school. And I don't think she really understood maybe like the magnitude of my talent or or what the opportunities could look like. And so for her, it just felt like this woman kind of coming into our lives and taking me away. And so, yeah, it it took time for her to really understand what it was I was doing with my career and where it could take me. But it was difficult. I mean, I was 13 years old when I moved in with my ballet teacher and her husband and at the time their three-year-old son. And I lived with them for like three and a half years. And that was how I could catch up on all of my training. I mean, they were completely dedicated to getting me to ABT. That was the goal. And four years within four years of training, I was at ABT dancing professionally. So at what point did the mindset switch for you to say, this is my future, this is my profession? And did you buy in that ABT was the goal? I would say, so it must have been a couple of months after I started dancing when I was invited to live with my teacher. That's when I knew that this was what I was going to do. I knew that I was going to be a professional. I knew ABT was it. ABT was the only company my teacher really ever introduced me to. She had all of the programs from the time the company was formed when it was founded. And I you know, knew every dancer like throughout the 70s and 80s and uh, was watching all the VHS tapes and was just like obsessed with this company. And, you know, as I was got older, you know, she explained to me that it was the most culturally diverse company in the world. 
especially, you know, in the 80s and in the 90s, this was where um, international superstars, they were all coming to ABT. You didn't have to come through a school and have all the same training. People could come from all different, you know, places. And she just felt like as a black girl, this was something where somewhere where she felt I could fit in um, more so than most other companies where you have to train in their school. Most, you know, they typically all look the same. And ABT was very unique in that way. It was once again Cindy who fostered an environment for Misty where she felt comfortable and included. In fact, Misty found out later in life that Cindy had fended off angry parents who made comments about Misty's race. I'm fortunate for the way that my first teacher really kind of sheltered me from a lot because I think had I been focused on being the only Black girl in my school or possibly being the only Black uh, woman to go to a professional company no matter where I went, Um, I think that wouldn't have allowed me to really uh, just focus on the training and just feel like I'm just like everyone else. You know, I'm just a dancer. And that's really the environment she made for me. Now, looking back, like we've had many conversations about the things that she kept from me. I mean, there were students that pulled out of the school when I came. There are parents that were giving money around the board that were like, why is she doing the lead? And just so things like that that were happening that I wasn't aware of. So when I got to ABT, it was like, I'm just another dancer. At just 16, three years after beginning ballet, she ventured to New York to train at the American Ballet Theater, or ABT, for a summer intensive. Initially, I was just overwhelmed. You know, I'm from a small town, like on the beach, like a port city in California. And and then to be to come here for the first time, like in the dead of summer, when it's just like so hot and muggy. And I just remember being so overwhelmed with like the trash on the street. I couldn't understand. I was like, why is there so much trash on the streets? Like people just leave their trash like out, you know, to be picked up. Evergreen question. But still, (laughs) why is this happening? I fell in love within a week. And just couldn't imagine myself living anywhere else. And this is like, you know, this like cultural mecca and, you know, thinking of ballet, New York City Ballet and ABT being here. And at the end of the program, Kevin McKenzie, the artistic director, pulled me aside and um, offered me a contract with their junior company. Wow. And it was like, well, I didn't know it was going to start this soon. Like it was like my first summer away. And I remember I just said to him, oh, I have to call my mom and ask. <laughs> He's like, wow, like, yeah, she's a little girl. Um, and my mom said no. So I ended up, she was like, I really want you to have as normal of this high school experience as possible. And I was like, I hated it. You know, I didn't want to go to prom. Like that was like the farthest thing from what I wanted to do. But she made me. Wait, you went to prom? I went to prom. It was terrible. It was at someone I didn't want to go. Like I, I, it was just terrible. I was like, I just want to be in New York. Um, so I went to prom. I graduated. Um, but Kevin promised that he would have a contract waiting for me when I graduated high school. So I came back for the summer when I was 17 years old. And I moved here that summer and finished the summer intensive program. And then at the end of the program, instead of going into the studio company, which is what he offered me, he um, offered me an apprenticeship with the company. So um, within two weeks, I was in China with the company. It was my first time out of the country. And it just kind of all began. Now we shine our Sunday spotlight on an African-American trailblazer. Misty Copeland is set to become a breakout ballet star, one of the only elite black ballerinas. And now she's wondering why there aren't more like her. I read an article about Misty Copeland, the ballet dancer. You're familiar with Misty? is a very interesting person. 
He's the first African-American female principal dancer with the American Ballet Theater. And I have to say, she reminds me... And then I ended up moving in with about, like, a ballet legend and her family, Isabel Brown, on the Upper West Side. And she had children, Leslie Brown, who was the star of the Turning Point, a principal dancer at ABT, and her son, Ethan Brown, and a daughter who was in New York City Ballet. They trained at SAB. So I was living in there, the apartment that she raised her children in. And it was just like, oh, my gosh. You know, I would, she would leave and, you know, go out on the town and, and I would sneak into her bookshelf and like find every ABT program possible. And just like, it was, it was like a dream, a ballerina's dream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were sort of forced to, to reckon with that pretty young at 19 due mm-hmm. to serious injury. Yeah. And tell us about that. And I mean, your body went through very serious transformation at that right. point because of it. I was still so new to dance, so I don't even think I really understood like the severity of an injury and what that meant. So it was my first year in the corps de ballet and I was not, I didn't understand that I was an athlete. Um, I didn't understand how to take care of my body and, and what PT looked like and not PT because you're injured, but just to maintain. That wasn't something that was even like talked about. At, at that point, you know, when I was coming up and, and so I was just working, working, working any gig that was being offered to me. I mean, I was dancing on concrete sometimes, like it was just terrible. And I ended up with a stress reaction in my lower lumbar and I ended up in a back brace for six months. I was wearing it 23 hours a day. And so I was out dancing for a year. And at that time, the doctors felt like I got the fracture because I wasn't menstruating. Um, and they felt that that, you know, and to me, like looking back, it was like, I was so healthy. It was completely normal. I was very small and very athletic. And so they ended up putting me on birth control. And back then, I mean, it was like, like so many hormones in these pills. They're not like lighter versions that are offered today. And I gained 10 pounds within like a couple of weeks and I had a completely different body that was like so unfamiliar to me. And then, you know, it completely changed how I was looked at in the ballet world. Like I came back to ABT after this injury and had like a double D breast and was so much heavier. And it was like, oh, all those opportunities kind of dried up because of, you know, instead of, you know, and it was like, oh, go see, go see a nutritionist but you have to pay for it. <laughs> um, you know, and so it was just, there wasn't, it just, I think it's just how the ballet world, especially was at that time. That's not, wasn't very nurturing, wasn't allowing people to understand like all that it takes to be a part of this field. Um, that there's so much that you have to do to take care of yourself. Can you talk to us about the mental process that you have to go through? You know, I think that people see your success and your, how strong you are mm-hmm. And think, well, of course, of course, she's so successful. You know, she keeps herself in incredible shape. Like, of course she is. But you've had very serious injuries with mm-hmm. long time periods of being out. Can you talk yeah. to us about how you mentally go through those moments? It's so wild to look back on it because I felt like at the time, like, oh, I was like a nutcase because like you're doing everything to to stay positive. And for me, in my mind, it was like, I have to keep dancing in my mind. And to not kind of step away and lose that momentum. So even if I couldn't physically do everything I needed to do, you know, I was working on things I had control over. So for instance, my most severe injury um, happened in, I think it was 2012. I had six stress fractures in my tibia and three of them were almost full breaks through the bone. 
and I ended up having to have a plate screwed in. And I was told by probably 10 doctors I would never dance again. And I found one doctor who worked with athletes, who worked with, you know, basketball players from the Knicks and professional football players. I was like, oh, we deal with these injuries all the time. Put the uh, plate in. But, you know, then I couldn't, I had to learn how to walk again. I, you know, it was like starting over. And at that time, and I've always been this way, you know, whenever I've had injuries, I've wanted to find different ways of cross training. Like, what can I do that's going to make me better? And so I found this amazing little old woman. I ran into her at the JCC in the locker room and she looked at me and she was like, are you Misty Copeland? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, I just saw you in the Firebird like a week ago. Like what's happening? And, you know, and then I ended up finding out she was a floor bar teacher and she had trained with this man in Paris who created the um, technique that she knew. And that was kind of what kept me sane. I mean, I wasn't standing, but I was doing ballet bar, laying on my back and on my stomach and on my side. And I was working on my port de bras, like my arms and things that I knew I wanted to work on. But I think that it's really staying mentally focused and mentally positive and in like a healthy headspace. Well, you've spoken a lot about, you know, kind of looking in hindsight about how coming up through the ranks as the only black ballerina it felt lonely and you didn't have a lot of peers. When you were looking forward to it, like you thought of ABT as the most culturally diverse company, did you have an awareness that it would be isolating? Like what was your mindset going in from that perspective? It was very shocking, like immediately, even just being in performances in different ballets that are considered, they're called the white ballets. And, you know, it was never even discussed with me, like what I'd have to do in order to like, you know, paint my skin a lighter color to fit in with the rest of the corps de ballet and things like that. That's when I really started to feel isolated and different. And I started to seek outside um, support and mentorship because there just wasn't around me. And it wasn't even that. Like the, the company, like they were my friends, you know, it's not like I was like completely on my own and isolated, but there was just a lack of understanding of, of what it is to be the only in a room or some of the microaggressions and even something as simple as like I was saying, like having to, I remember in particular, I think we were on the road in like Detroit or somewhere like touring and we were doing the ballet Giselle and the second act, all the willies and the court of ballet, you know, we all put the pancake on our skin because we're supposed to be dead. <laughs> and it was just normal that, you know, there's one color and they just pass it around the room before the second act for everyone. And I was like, I can't wear this color. Like I'll look like I'm ashy, like I need lotion. And it was just little things like that that just started to get me thinking. Like there's not like history books that you can really open up and learn about other black dancers that have been in these companies and been the only in these companies they existed. So I just was like on a mission to finding out who are these people? I know I'm a part of something that's bigger than myself. And and how can I connect with this community that I know is there? So how quickly, like at what point did you say, okay, well, as well as dancing my tail off, like to be in your real profession as a principal ballerina. In addition, I'm going to create a whole body of work that's going to open the funnel for other women and girls to be in this profession. Having amazing mentors in my life and, and Black women that I think allowed me to see myself in a different way 
not that they were telling me how to see myself, but just seeing them existing in their fields as the first and how I felt towards them. And then thinking, well, there's just me being on this stage at ABT is giving hope to, you know, one person that might come and see a performance and be able to see themselves represented on this stage. That allowed me to start to think beyond this kind of narrow career of like what it was growing up. It was like, I want to be a soloist one day and then I want to be a principal. But to me, this is so much bigger than all of that, like this opportunity. It was a handful of people who helped Misty turn that ambition into action. Her manager, Gilda Squire, showed Misty how she could turn her incredible story of resilience into something that can impact young girls and change the ballet industry for generations to come. She approached me, it was for PR, and she was like, I'm just so fascinated with your story. I think more people need to hear about about your story and where you come from and how you've gotten here. And you're, you know, the first, or I was the second female um, African-American soloist at ABT at that time. And so she pro bono for a couple of months and was like, just let's see what we can do, you know, what, what traction we can get. And I would just go to public schools and like speak to kids and just say like, I'm a real person. Like, you know, I can't, I come from similar background as you and like where I'm at and it continued to grow. And after, you know, that time passed where she was like, okay, well, that's that. Like, um, that was my time. And I was like, will you be my manager? I didn't even really understand what that meant. But she saw something in me that I, I think no one had ever seen. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Once Misty's perspective on her career and impact shifted, she began to find opportunities elsewhere, opportunities that aligned with her vision for a more inclusive future. And I feel like things just kind of in the way that they have, I think throughout my career that I've never really said, okay, I want to do this and then made it happen rather than like things just making sense and organically falling into place that are all aligned with the same goals and the same missions as what I'm doing when I'm on stage. You know, Mm -hmm. it's about representation. It's about showing the beauty of this art form, that it's an incredible way of um, communicating. It's just arts education, dance education is so vital. And so everything that I do is really connected to those, you know, same goals. Yeah. Were you, so you were thinking of them as an extension of the work that you were doing Mm -hmm. and they were contemporaneous in time. Mm -hmm. Were you thinking of them as well? You know, now I'll have like a career income streams if, if the dancing ends, because, you know, one day it might end. And also you went through some pretty serious injuries. Yeah, Yeah. You know, I never thought of it that way. I never thought like. I need to do these things in case, you know, I get injured and I can't dance again or because my career will be over one day. I did them because they felt right. And again, they've been happening throughout my career. So it's not like it's like, you know, towards the end. And then I started doing all of these things. It's, it's, it really has been a slow growth throughout, throughout my career. But of course, like, yes, it, you know, I, I, I think that something that I encourage young dancers and even just even my, my colleagues, you know, to do is to live your life, not to get so kind of immersed in this world that you aren't actually living and experiencing things and seeing things that might organically just come in or things that you think of that will draw you in a certain path and direction. I think that no matter what people go on to do after being exposed to the arts or exposed to dance or ballet in particular, they're going to be great at whatever they do. Because I think that, you know, we're taught to be focused and disciplined and our work ethic is like no other. And so, you know, I don't think it's really about, you know, trying to force a a different career on yourself, but just like allowing these things to happen. But those things won't happen unless you go out and you explore and experience. And you also, I think, will be a more full artist if you have those experiences experiences as well. At this moment, I don't think ballet could be more relevant in the world and in pop culture. And I think that the arts do this in general for people, which is why I think it's so vital for the arts to be um, a part of our, you know, education, a part of it should be a part of our school curriculum, um, no matter what the art form is. Her passion for ballet and the arts is reflected in one of her largest ventures to date, 
the Misty Copeland Foundation, which offers dance education through their program, Be Bold. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it started as this small idea, you know, and Darren Walker and encouraging me and he, he introduced me to my philanthropic advisor, Jane Poland, who's really incredible. And, you know, it was like, well, what has ballet given you that you would want to give back to um, communities like you came from and, and beyond? And, you know, thinking back on that first ballet class that I took, like not every child, especially who comes from circumstances like I did, um, has access and opportunity. And that's what I was given at my Boys and Girls Club, you know, by them giving me this this space and, and access with this teacher coming in to, to find um, more diverse students to bring into her school in full scholarship. So it was really taking that concept and idea, but really shaking it up even more than that. So we built the, our first signature program under the Misty Copeland Foundation is, is Be Bold. And it stands for Ballet Explorations. Ballet offers leadership development. To me, it's bigger and goes beyond just a free ballet class. You know, we're not necessarily out there looking for the next ballet superstar. We're giving these children an opportunity to be in this space to have some sense of release and stress-free where their phones aren't in front of them or, you know, just the stress of whatever's going on in their lives before they make it to this after-school program. And we've taken the concept of a ballet class and really kind of shaken it up as well. So, you know, we're thinking right now we're in the Bronx and we're in Harlem. We're at 14 sites and we have 15 classes that are being offered at different community centers. We started out at just Boys and Girls Clubs, but we've expanded beyond that because we really want to reach as many children as possible. But, you know, thinking about this European art form and like, how will these kids connect to this, bringing it into their communities? The goal of the Misty Copeland Foundation is to bring um, greater diversity, equity, and inclusion to dance, but especially ballet. Be Bold is the first initiative. With the kids Thank and you. you're actually doing all of the things that eight years ago when <laughs> we first interviewed, you said you wanted to do, you're doing them. Yeah. And so we wanted to really take what ballet is in terms of, you know, the foundation and the technique and holding on to that, but doing it in a way that is more accessible. We have music, live musicians in every class, and it's not just piano, it's drummers and bass players and literally every musician you can think of. We want to be able to show these children that you can move to anything. You're just finding fun and accessible ways of bringing them into the ballet community. And it's been very successful. Beyond her foundation, she also works in the commercial space, bringing her expertise as an elite athlete to her partnership with Under Armour, the first ballerina to join an athletic brand. And eventually with her athletic wear line, Greatness Wins. It's really exciting back when I think back to when I when I first joined Under Armour um, and what a big deal it was for for a brand. And I feel like, you know, Under Armour, we really grew together. Stephen Curry, you know, was really starting was like coming into his own and Jordan Spieth and God, who else was there? I mean, there was some mega athletic stars. And then for them to bring me in as, you know, the first ballerina to be put, you know, next to these big athletes was such a, a big deal. But it was like, we are equally as athletic, if not more in what the training is and what we have to do. And, you know, we are artists as well and actors and actresses. And, and we deserve to have opportunity, financial opportunities like this in the same way that professional athletes do. And so I've tried to 
think about ways in which I could start my own line. And when I was approached by Derek Jeter um, with this idea for this athletic run line, greatness wins, it was like, this is what I've been waiting for. This makes sense to not just be the face of a product now at this point, um, but to be a founder in the company. So it's really exciting to, you know, Derek launched the line um, a year ago, the men's line. And then I launched the women's line just um, a couple of months ago. So it's exciting. And, you know, I think what better people to have on on the inside who understand what it is to be an athlete and actually wear this gear and, and how we can make it the best it can be. So it's a lot to take on. How involved in it are you? Like, are you in the design, the, yes. the product, everything? I'm involved in everything. We're like a small but mighty team. And we're just, you know, trying to show that this is really great quality product. But I think it's also about the stories that we're telling and that we're connecting with people. Like this is athletic wear for everyone, but it's for people who are focused and really want to work in the gym or in the studio or wherever you are. That it's not an athleisure line. Yes, there are beautiful pieces that you can wear that are comfortable, but it's really about serious athletes. And I don't mean that in a way of professional athletes, but people who are really, you know, focused and dedicated on um, being, you know, their best selves. Okay. I have to ask you about your performance live with Taylor Swift. It was an incredible experience. Like I've worked with a lot of artists and especially um, musicians and incredible musicians, and you just never know what you're going to (laughs) get. And I feel that doing this podcast. (laughs) You never know. You never know. And people are never really what you think they might be. And um, you're exactly what I thought you would be. You're very nice. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Well, she's everything I thought she would be, which was really incredible. You know, I remember she she called up my manager and she was like, I really want Missy to perform with me at the American Music Awards. She was being honored. And I was like, oh, okay. I never imagined or thought about performing with her. And she was just, she was so invested and so involved and so respectful. It wasn't like me and my partner were going up there as her backup dancers. Like she really acknowledged us as partners with her in this performance. And we spent hours and hours rehearsing together in the the theater and um, her whole family was there. And they're just all so grounded and so normal. Like it's so wild when you meet someone that's like that much of a mega superstar and is normal. I mean, Prince was not normal. And I mean that in the best way. I mean, he, he was like a rock star, like, you know, like the classic idea of a rock star. And so it's like very different, you know, (laughs) very different people. So for the process, for the performance that you did both with Prince and with Taylor Mm -hmm. Swift, was it a collaborative creation process? Like, did you choreograph it kind of on the music with her? Yeah. So she sent the music ahead of time and I had a choreographer, um, but we were literally sending her videos of these rehearsals as it was being created. And she was like approving or saying like, this would work better if you're over here, the piano is going to be here. And I want to sing to you at this point. So it was, it was very collaborative with Prince. It was like a mix of things. Cause I worked with him over the course of like five years where, you know, when I first started working with him, he was like, Oh, just improvise and make up stuff on the stage. And I was like, what? Like as ballet dancers, like, yeah, that's not something you're learned to do. It's like, you're told what to do down to like where your eyes are looking at like every moment. And so it was like shocking, but I grew so much as an artist working with him. But then later on, we were working together he was like oh you know you can bring a choreographer in but then he ended up choreographing it himself 
<laughs> like literally he was like, no, 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 this is what I want you to do. And I'm like, all right, I'll turn that into a ballet move, I guess, like what he's doing. <laughs> when I watched your performance with Taylor Swift, the way that it flows, she goes like, you know, nine minutes that builds and builds and builds. Yeah, and yeah. it's so wild. And then it slows mm -hmm. down to this beautiful moment with you dancing and her at the piano. And as I was watching it, I had in my head you saying, well, as ballet dancers, we're not used to seeing an active audience. Right. And I thought, oh my goodness, how did you take your adrenaline down to be in that yeah, moment? It's really hard. I mean, I have such a different experience. Again, like you were saying, you know, usually where you don't see, you can't even see people. And that was what I, that's what I've loved about, you know, performing in this kind of concert field where you're in a theater, where you feel like you're in this kind of secure bubble. And then when you're in those spaces, it's just like, there's no rules. And yeah, it's like, you have to stay grounded. You can't get carried away with all the like hype and chaos that you're seeing, which is harder to stay focused. And like when someone's looking at you or whistling or wanting to throw something on the stage and you're on point shoes. <laughs> Recently, Misty became a mother. And when she speaks about her son, she glows. It's clear that she's excited and ready for this new chapter of her life. I'm very fortunate that I've been, I was able to have a, a baby at 39. Um, that's not always the case. It's just amazing to be able to step back and really focus on family, you know, at 40 years old. And we were talking earlier about, um, you know, how difficult it is for, for working women um, to set aside the time to have a family and especially being an athlete and being a performer. And um, I'm so grateful for the career that I've had. Um, but it's, it's difficult, you know, to find that balance. And I'm just lucky to have him. And I have friends who, who have waited until their careers have been over or towards the end of their careers and they have, they, they're struggling or just can't. And it's really difficult to, to watch. But, you know, I always knew that I, I wanted to wait until I got to a certain place in my career before I did that. I know that had I been a soloist and had a baby, there's no way that, and it's so terrible to say, but that they would have taken me seriously and continued to give me opportunities. And that time I would have been out and wanted to be with my baby. I would have been pushed to the side and other opportunities would have been given away. And so I knew that I wanted to wait until I was a principal dancer. I was 32 when I was promoted to principal. Misty, take a bow. <laughs> A moment in history shared on Instagram. Dancer Misty Copeland celebrating with her fellow dancers after learning of her promotion, becoming the first African-American female principal in the American Ballet Theater's 75-year history, the highest honor for a performer. But then like you get to that place and you're like, but I need to actually be a principal dancer now. So it was like five years I waited and then, you know, the pandemic happened and um, which was perfect timing for me to be able to just kind of take a moment after, you know, being a professional for 20 years and really not stopping unless I was had an injury to really step back and say, there's so many more things I want to do that I've kind of started, but now I can really focus. So, I mean, the pandemic was terrible for everybody. Yeah. I think particularly people in the performing arts because mm -hmm. there was no light at the end of the tunnel, right. but it did give you that time, the opportunity to expand on these things. How quickly did you jump into it and how did you decide to use your time? I jumped in immediately. 
I feel like that was such a difficult time for us in the performing arts, but it allowed us to have some step back and have some perspective, you know, to really realize that there are so many things we need to be doing to memorialize like what we do, you know, with all of the union rules and things like that. Like we don't have, at least at American Ballet Theater, and I think more specifically in the United States, we don't have access to being being able to film, record a lot of our performances. There's there's so many rules and, and things like that. And, and I think we really realized it during the pandemic where it was like, well, what are we going to show? We don't have anything to show. And so that really made me start to think about my production company, which was already formed, I don't know, three or four years before the pandemic. But like, this is an opportunity to capture movement on my own terms in spaces that looking at a theater in a different way, like it doesn't have to be a traditional theater. We created um, our film Flower, which is a short film and using the streets of Oakland for our stage. Misty Copeland is blending art and activism through her latest project, Flower. It's a 28-minute film that pays homage to black silent films of the 1920s. Flower premiered at Tribeca Festival, and you can see it this Saturday at Lincoln Center. We are officially on the red carpet for Flower, and trust me, you want to stick around. We got a lot of stars coming up. We are at the... Telling stories that are relevant to what we're going through, not just as Americans, but in the world, you know, dealing with homelessness and the housing crisis and gentrification. And so, you know, it just kind of expanded and opened my eyes to ways I could use what I've learned on stage to do so many different things. From that quiet girl from coastal California to now impacting change at the highest levels, Misty has become more and more comfortable and has a seat at tables and boards that can truly make impactful change. And then I also was having conversation with Alex Poots, the artistic director of The Shed. And, you know, we had come up with a bunch of ideas that never really came to fruition. But I ended up joining the board of The Shed, you know, which was a really big step as an, as an artist, as an athlete, as a Black woman to be on the other end of things. And then um, shortly thereafter, I ended up joining the board of Lincoln Center. And this was all during the pandemic. And and to me, I've, I've always talked about like, how do we really make impactful change within the dance world? And I think that, you know, just be able to see more inclusion and more diversity, I think it starts from the top. It starts from the board of directors. So to be able to have a presence and have a voice in those spaces to me is how we really see real like systemic change. You had said over the summer that you thought this fall you were going to be dancing again. Yeah, that was the idea. (laughs) (laughs) Not to be a spoiler alert here, but it is no longer the fall and you did not not, dance this fall. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. No, I mean, I feel like I've gotten so much momentum with all of these things. And I'm so hands on with everything that there was like there was no way that I could step away. And I've dedicated 23 years, you know, to being a professional. And now I think it's time to focus on these other things, you know, while while they have, you know, this this momentum going. And I want to continue to grow my family as well. So we'll see. I know that dance, well, dance will always be in my life. It's everything that I'm doing outside of being on the stage. But I know that I will make it back to the stage at, in some capacity. But I don't know what that will look like right now. Oh, I love that. So looking back, what is one thing that 
at the time you thought, oh, this is, this is really a setback. Like this is really, this is really a down. And now you look at it as having changed your mindset. So it really launched you. I would say my biggest injury, you know, there were moments where the night before I pulled out of the season, I had performed the Firebird for the first time at the Metropolitan Opera House. It was the first time we saw almost, it was a full house, but more than half of the audience were black and brown people. And it was just such an incredible experience to see this transformation of people that are interested in classical ballet and actually showing up in a space that they haven't always felt welcomed in. The following day I pulled out and I was like, I don't, you know, that performance needed to happen, whether or not my leg was going to break in the middle of it or not. It needed to happen um, because this is bigger than me. It's like it, we we did it. We got all of those people in the room. And then it was like, OK, well, now now what? And I think that I learned so much from that experience that, again, it's like it's not about me as an individual, but it's about how can I use my voice and use my platform to bring about change. And I think that that just made me feel like I could do anything, that there's so much more there that I'm never going to be that dancer I was before that injury. I'm never going to be that woman I was before I had a baby, you know, like, but we should be evolving. We should be continuing to pivot throughout our lives. That's how we continue to evolve as, you know, a society. And so I think it's so important that we're always thinking about how we can um, continue to grow and be better than who we used to be and also inspire the next generation to be better than we are. So, you know, given all of your work on stage, off stage, what do you want your legacy to be? That's such a hard question. You know, I really hope to just have had an impact on the ballet community that we that we really do see meaningful change and growth because I feel like we've existed in this bubble for so long and haven't been forced to you know be more inclusive and I and I hope that that's what I've done I hope that I've you know shown people taught people about different black and brown dancers throughout history that maybe they haven't known about or that um, our history books don't share I want my legacy to be that I am a storyteller and not just of the traditional historical ballets, but of what ballet could look like for the future. Oh, I love that. Well, thank you so much thank for joining you. us. It's been so thank great. Thank you for having me. Misty is continuing to grow the Misty Copeland Foundation and her athletic wear, all while balancing becoming a mother. If you want to dive into Misty's incredible story, be sure to read her New York Times bestselling memoir, Life in Motion. Misty says she hopes to return to the stage, so be sure to follow her on Instagram at Misty on Point so you don't miss it. Thanks for listening to this episode of She Pivots. If you made it this far, you're a true pivoter, so thanks for being part of this community. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, leave us a rating. Please be nice. Tell your friends about us. To learn more about our guests, follow us on Instagram at ShePivotsThePodcast or sign up for our newsletter where you can get exclusive behind the scenes content or on our website, ShePivotsThePodcast. Talk to you next week. Special thanks to the She Pivots team, executive producer, Emily Edavolosic, Associate Producer and Social Media Connoisseur Hannah Cousins, Research Director Christine Dickison, Events and Logistics Coordinator Madeline Sinovic, and Audio Editor and Mixer Nina Pollock.
I endorse T pivots. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 